Hello and welcome to the GLT podcast series with the Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club, where we talk all things teaching and learning with leading educationalists across the world. My name is Rhiannon Rainbow. And my name is Dave Tushingham. This is a place to enjoy listening to organic conversations between teachers and authors, a journey in bringing the latest evidence-based literature into the classroom. Hello and welcome to our 17th GLT is Always Learning GLT Book Club podcast, which is also our very first done in combination with Maths Chat Live and Atal Rana. Where we'll be looking at care in mathematics education, alternative educational spaces and practices, written by Anne Watson. Let's get stuck in. I've um, two days in a row and today we have a really really special edition it's a collaboration between the greenshaw learning trust and mass chat live um, it's very organic mass chat live is exactly what it says uh, it's a chat between uh, colleagues who live and breathe mathematics teaching uh, not just us here but uh, you out there on twitter youtube or facebook uh, we really want you to get involved we could have easily match out life could easily be something recorded that's put on YouTube but that's not the idea behind it it's supposed to be interactive so um, while we're talking if anything comes up uh, do please comment or reply to this tweet or periscope and we'll do our best when the time is right to bring your comment in and bring you in to the conversation as well so I'm going to hand over to Rhiannon who's really running this book club uh, tonight so uh, yeah over to you Rhiannon Hi, um, evening everybody rather than afternoon and welcome to, as Atul said, it's our very first um, Maths Chat Live and GLT Book Club joint session and this evening we are joined by our very special guest Anne Watson as we'll be looking at her book but before I do that I would very much like to introduce you to a slightly different setup we have this evening. Uh, we have some incredible people in the panel with us so we are going to go around the room a little bit and just say hi to everybody and then they can introduce themselves and a little bit about them. Um, you know me by now but for those of you who knew I'm Rhiannon Rainbow. I I am a School Improvement Lead Maths for the Greenshaw Learning Trust and co-founder of GLT Book Club. Um, so, uh, Rachel Willerton, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Hi, yeah, Rachel. I'm a second in maths uh, in Gloucester, a PD lead for the local um, NCTM Maths Hub. And the person who introduced me to Anne Watson and her work and her fabulous workshops that she does with John, who is on the panel as well. So, uh, Rachel Helm, please. Hi there. Yes, my name is Rachel Helm. So I was a maths teacher for about nine years um, and I'm now currently at the University of Bristol doing a PhD in education. And I'm looking at the experiences of students who resit maths at an FE college. Wow. Um, Alison, with, with a sparkly jacket. <laughs> Hi, uh, good evening, everybody. Lovely to be here. Um, yeah, what can I say? Alison Borthwick, once a reluctant mathematician. Now I love maths and I love glitter. And um, yeah, just very excited to talk about maths. Thank you. And Catherine. I knew you were going to ask me to do this just as Arby started going crazy. Uh, <laughs> I'm Catherine, I'm second in maths in West Yorkshire, I'm also a secondary maths specialist at the NCTM. Um, yeah, that's me. And also known as Arithmetics. Uh, Kieran, would you like to come in please? Yeah, 
Hi, I'm Kieran Michael, and primary teacher with a very special interest in mathematics. Thank you, Charlotte. Hi, I'm Charlotte Lawthorn, um, and I'm second in maths in North Staffordshire. Oh, it's such a great panel, isn't it? Uh, Julia, I got the right name this time rather than your Twitter handle. Thank you very much. Um, commonly found on, twi on Twitter. Um, I'm a maths teacher, trainer and author as well uh, with a special interest in GCSE resits, maths resits and also functional maths. And John, may I bring you in now, please? <clears throat> uh, John Mason, I have the honour and pleasure to be married to Anne Watson. Uh, apart from that, I uh, retired for 15 years and I think about mathematical problems and I try to create applets that help me solve problems and possibly teachers to, uh, to use in their teaching. Thank you. Um, Atul, I, I, I feel I need to give you an opportunity to say hi too, even though you've introduced the session. Yeah, sure. I'm uh, Atul. I teach uh, maths online as an online maths teacher. Um, and I host Math Chat Live. Um, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Ah, yeah. oh, there's a lot more to you than that one. And Dave, here we go, bottom corner. Hi, I'm Dave Tushkin. I'm a lead practitioner uh, in a school in Bristol and uh, yeah, co-founder of the GLC Book Club with Leanne. Fantastic. So as, as you can tell, it is a pretty incredible panel this evening. You know, it's, it's, it's the only way to start the very first session, isn't it, with, with the people that we've got joining us and also to look at this amazing book. But I'll leave Dave to start with that one. And I have the honour and the privilege and the, the difficult task in, in many ways of, of introducing Anne and, and deciding which bits to draw upon. So what I have done is, I'll be very short, I'm just taking it from um, the Oxford Education website, actually. I do prefer to have it written down. It's really helpful so I don't forget certain things. And you, um, Anne's a member of the ATM, which is the Association of Teachers of Mathematics, the British Society for Research into the Learning of Mathematics, the International Group for the Psychology of Mathematics Education and the Higher Education Academy, and the Canadian Mathematics Education Study Group. You can see why it's easier written down. She also has fellowships of the International Society for Design and Development in Education and the Institute for Mathematics and its applications. With her husband, who's joined us on the panel, John Mason and others, she runs an annual Institute of Mathematics Pedagogy for four days in July to August in Oxford and cracking Saturday sessions you guys run as well as everything else that you do. So thank you so much for for joining us this evening and it really is very very special and there are an awful lot more things that you have done as well um and without further ado i will hand over to co-founder very good friend dave tushingham thank you Ree. um and uh, and thank you Anne, for joining us today um what a wonderful um experience this is already and um just wanted to talk very briefly about why we chose to look at this book in particular um and, and it, it comes from a slight embarrassment if i'm if i'm honest for um, a session that we had with Peter Matter back in Christmas, where he introduced us to John Mason's work and um, of learning and doing mathematics. And um, and as soon as I started reading that, I realised um, this is this is something that really does need um, more exploration and, and really is going to help me in, in my classroom. And I very quickly then learn of, of your work also. And and so so seeing this book come out, it was um, it was a no brainer to, to get a copy as soon as I possibly could. And 
Um, and I know a few people in the panel already have been talking about the potential of setting up um, their own unique book club where we can just talk um, over Twitter or just talk together in, in a small group about, about what we found in the book. And, um, and as I started reading it um, very quickly, I started writing notes and then I have a, have a review here of, um, that I've written of just, just quite what I thought um, from the book. But there's so many positives that I, I pulled out and I was able to take into my own practice. Um, and, and the things that really stood out for me um, within this book was um, was around the, I guess, the, the way that it was very sort of unbiased in what you were talking about. You were very good at um, being very impartial with, with your thoughts and ideas. Um, but looking at those um, alternative um, educational spaces, um, I really got a feel for what they looked like and what they felt like. Um, and then I was able to, to think in, in real time of what that would look like in my classroom. And then as I was reading further, it became clear that the, the core for me was around the nature of care and education and how we, how we show care within our lessons and, and how we show care within mathematics in particular. And so, so the, the extract that I picked just really made me think about caring for self, caring for the inner circle and, and, and those other points that, that you talk about within the extract that we've chosen. Um, and it really sort of sunk in one, one day when I was talking about um, your book and I was uh, writing a part of this review and, and one of the um, teachers that were sat next to you was talking to me about one of their problems and, and there's a part in there where you talk about how care is about giving 100% of your attention um, and as I was writing a book excited about what you've written um, I, was, I was not giving that 100% of attention and it just really made me think about what, what that care really feels like um, but I felt like there's loads to learn I felt like there's loads to learn about how you truly care about the subject about the staff about the, um, the people that you're teaching um, as well and what that looks like in different settings also. So I've got a thousand questions, which I'll try not to hold tonight, but um, a thousand things which uh, I'm really interested in sort of digging a little deeper about and just find out more about what your thoughts were and what your experiences were as well, because it just looked like a wonderful journey. Um, but it's not, I mean, that's I think too much of me talking already. So I'm gonna stop there and, and just um, hand over to you and to, to introduce your book and just sort of some of your thoughts before we start talking about um, our experiences and our thoughts from reading it. Well, it's interesting that you talk about a journey because it really was a journey writing it. Um, I, I knew I wanted to write about positive relationships in maths classrooms and how important those relationships are. I knew I didn't want to go down into kind of mindfulness and well-being and happiness and, and those things. I, I knew that I I wasn't going to write about those ideas as central. I was going to stick with the mathematics as being central and with the relationship through the shared task, the shared task being the mathematics um, as part of the development of children, the, the development of their their mathematical being and their mathematical powers and their mathematical understanding and, and the mathematical way of looking at the world and feeling confident and competent about that. And that was the shared task that teachers have when they're teaching mathematics. Um, so I knew I was going to write about that, but I didn't really know the shape of the book at all. Um, until I started following avenues to reading and um, hearing just 
becoming aware of things that people were saying to me about their teaching, which to me sounded like care. Um, and collecting those and then trying to organize them. And I think it's really interesting that you picked out pages 79 to 85. Somebody said, I think this is the core of the book. And I thought, oh, I wonder what they think is the core of the book, because I can't tell you what the core of the book is. Um, when you write a book, it's, it's a bit like, um, and then you publish it and you put it out into the world and you expect people to read it and make something of it and, and to not necessarily see what you saw in it. So I looked at these pages and I thought afterwards, yeah, actually, I suppose that is the core of the book. Well done for spotting that. <laughs> because it, it, um, it reflects on the kind of build up that I've given it to that chapter care. And then everything that happens after that can be seen in the light of what's in the, on those pages. So brilliant reading skills, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> um, I think that's... Um, one thing that I wanted to do, the other thing I wanted to do was to really honor the practices of teachers. Because I'm not, I hope it doesn't come across as my telling anybody how to teach or what to do. Everything that's there is through the practices of teachers and trying to report those as honestly as I can and in as much detail as I can, so that as you've said, Dave, so that you can imagine oh, yes, I can get a feel for what this teaching situation is like. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Anne. Um, I think we're all, well, Dave's already raised his hand. Okay, I'll shut up. Dave, come on, come back in. All yours. And I, I will try not to hog this. Um, I'm very sorry. Um, but there's, I just wanted um, or, or hoped and that you, you'd be interested in talking a bit more about this or, or maybe other people would want to offer their suggestions as well but the, the part um sorry, a little phrase in the book of that really stuck in my mind was the phrase of culturally responsive teaching um and it really made me think about like when i move schools or when i, I teach different classes within my school either the subtleties in that and and, and what it looks like to, to teach those different students and, and maybe some of your experiences around some of those different cultures and and those responses and to what you what you learned and thought about those it's an interesting phrase isn't it because as i say somewhere in the book we, we've all got cultures you know if the, the teachers the teachers that are teaching in uh the micmac community for instance um lisa who teaches in the micmac community um you could say oh she had to learn the micmac culture but come on a minute, doesn't Lisa have a culture as well? And part of the culture that Lisa has is of being a maths teacher and of the things that go with that. Not to mention Lisa's own language, her own first language, her own um, habits, her own expectations about behaviour and so on. We, we all have culture. And in my career, which has been quite long, there have been times when people have said um, school is a middle-class culture and that, 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 that school is an attempt to kind of middle-class eyes everybody. 
I wouldn't think that was true at Eton. I think middle class would be the lowest of their expectations. But, you know, I don't know. I've never been to Eton. But, um, but I think that there is something to be thought about there. But then I heard uh, later on, um, probably about 25 years ago, um, to do well at school, it's a very feminized culture because it's about compliance. You do well at school if you're compliant and if you fit in and if you do what people ask you to do and if you look after the teacher's pencils and you offer to clean the board and do all those sorts of things. Now, why that should be considered feminine, I'm not too sure, um, because my own commitment to feminism is a little bit dodgy, but, um, but that was how it was described. You, you, you have to kind of um, behave in a way that maybe is typically feminine in order to get on at school. I'm not talking about teachers. Teachers can, I'm talking about the kids. And, and that was interesting. And I know there's quite a, quite a bit of literature about um, boys and girls development being different and boys and girls educational needs being, being different. Um, I'm not sure how true that is or how relevant that is. Um, I haven't really thought it through, but I do know that culture isn't just what other people have. It's also what we all have individually as teachers, and it's also what our school has. So being culturally responsive is about listening and trying to work out where your students, your learners, your pupils, whatever, where they are coming from and what their ways of thinking are and how, for instance, they are enculturated into behaving towards adults, for instance. It might not be the way that you hope it is. Um, and, uh, and mainly it's about listening and not judging and trying to learn from other people. And I think that message is throughout the book is about listening and the teacher as a learner of people, the teacher learning about children, learning about her or his students, um, doing learning by listening. I think there's a really interesting thing that um, Oliver Caviglioli said about um, that as well, if I've got this right around um, handwriting with boys and girls and said that there isn't anything in your DNA, which um, as a boy means that you find it harder to, to write. And, um, and it just made me think whether, whether that's right or wrong, or whether there's um, something behind that. It just really made me think then um, about sort of just, just noticing. And as you say, listening, I was thinking of it as noticing, but listening is a really good way of saying that. Um, and, and just really understanding the students that you have in front of you, because if you really, truly actively listen to the students in front of you, you're going to have far greater chance of, of making that true connection and being able to support them in that mathematical journey. Yeah. Mm, fab, we're definitely all listening on to, to, to every single word at the moment, aren't we? Come on in, Alison. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I just wondered whether it would be helpful kind of just to share 
kind of I've got a, I've, I could talk about loads I'm actually a bit worried I only had 998 questions and so so Dave's obviously you know a little bit you know more thorough with his a thousand but um I wondered whether it was I, I kind of thought I'd share my reactions to the book um because I think it's what I, th I think I've had a really uh interesting reaction uh, so kind of three points to make really first of all I think this is a game changer um, I think there are just, you know, a handful of books that you read in your lifetime that just cause you to stop and just have a very, very powerful emotional, physical, cognitive, psychological, put in anything else, their reaction to it. And, and, I, and I've read this a, a couple of times now, and each time I'm amazed at kind of the, the reaction I have to it, which I have to say, and by the way, is, is totally positive. And also a little bit jealous that I keep thinking, why didn't we think about this as well? You know, you've you've kind of captured everything and put it in a book. So I think for me, I'd, you know, I really want to say to people, you know, really get your hands on it. This for me is a, is a real game changer in education, particularly in maths education, but in education anyway. The second thing is that the one of my kind of golden threads that I take from the book is that any teacher can and any student can. And I think, you know, that's a really powerful message that you've you've kind of tapped into that, you know, we can all do this and yet we're all different. And, and that's, it's a privilege to be different and it's a privilege to try and think and, and, and kind of teach in a slightly different way according to your audience, whatever that is. And, you know, and I came away, you know, I come away reading this thinking, oh my goodness, you know, absolutely. Um, so I think for me, every time I read it, it just makes me stop and think. And then I think, why, why am I doing this when I could do, you know, it, so I think that kind of that reflection and that thinking about the thinking for me is very positive. And the third thing, and, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, because it, you know, it, I don't know, you know, looking at it, you might think, well, is it for me? What I want to say to people who are looking at it, thinking, well, you know, it hasn't got any balloons on it, it hasn't got any glitter on it, you know, it, what I want to say to any teacher, any teaching professional out there, is that when you read it, it feels like you're sitting in Anne's house at a kitchen table having a chat because actually what you've done, Anne, is you've just managed to write it in such a beautiful, accessible way that, you know, you know, sometimes you have to, you read something, you think, I'll just go back and reread that sentence because I'm not quite sure about, you know, 25% of the words. Actually, I just, I read it and I just absorb it. And a bit like you, Dave, I can't help making notes on it. So I've probably got a book about the notes. And so I just wanted to say, you know, for me, this is a total game changer and, that's it now that you know this is paving you know just I don't know I just love it sorry I stopped thinking talking this, this, this is why I was nervous about this evening because I don't know what to do with all that but <laughs> say some things I I I wanted it to be academically uh I don't know what's the word robust and in I wanted the academic integrity to be right but I actually wanted to write to teachers. Oh, you've, you've nailed it. That's why, the, that's why I'm so upset about the price that I have nothing to do with the, the, what the price ended up being. I wanted to write for teachers, but I wanted it to be, to have that academic integrity. But also I think that what you're expressing, Alison, I hope what you're expressing is 
The reason it's done that to you is because it's giving you, it's articulating things that are probably in your subconscious. It is speaking to you in your subconscious and it's sort of giving you permission to allow those things to rise up and I hope become a, a major thing in your teacher identity. Because we're so weighed down, I think, with the identity of, of getting kids through the curriculum, getting kids through tests, doing this, doing that. What's the latest bit of cognitive science or cod science sometimes? But what's the latest bit of cognitive science I'm supposed to be applying or whatever? And, and to get laid down, sort of weighed down with that. And to what I'm hoping the book will do is to allow those things that brought you into teaching to rise above that and to sort of flow down over that so that the way that you enact those things that I've just described is which are, which are mainly you know useful things and, and will improve children's learning that the way you enact them is coated in this wonderful layer of your subconscious best self. Absolutely totally um yeah, all, all of that. The, the literature review is immense, um, but you've you've just simplified it in a way that's accessible, I think, for anybody in the classroom who doesn't necessarily want to, you know, read a peer reviewed article, uh, let alone if they've got access to it, etc. You know, chapter one is just the most amazing, you know, gallop through mathematical history. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, you know, you know, all of that is just great. And I think leading up to the chapter on care, for me, that was kind of just, it was really kind of, it, it's, I feel like I am on that journey, you know, going from, from chapter one to chapter two mm. to chapter three. And then by the time I get to chapter five, yeah, it is definitely that. I think it's more than permission. It's, you're right about tapping into that self-consciousness and kind of that, you know, it, yes, but it's, it's, it is permission, but it's more than that as well. But, I'm, but I can see other people are going to come in, so I'll let other people talk. I think it was really interesting because when you were saying it felt like a game changer for you. Uh, when I was reading it, there were parts of it where I wrote things down like, this is what makes me think lessons are good when I go on a learning walk around school. Like, I've literally written teachers' names down, and I'm like, this bit where it's like, if I communicate my enthusiasm for mathematics, um then those for whom I'm caring will do the same thing that's like that's what when I walk into a lesson I'm like oh my god the kids are totally getting this because he's absolutely off on one about how amazing this is or how amazing this is or <laughs> and the kids are, are eating every single word and want every single part of it and so I do think that that like it's kind of a mix between the two it feels like it feels like permission like I'm just said to, to be like that and like and every lesson and all the classes I have the most successful relationships with are the ones where I can be like that where I can be like so over exuberant about the things that I love that like by extension they end up loving it as well and so it's quite nice to kind of have someone write it down and see that that like that's almost like it's academically valid that to be that ridiculous about loving your subject um because sometimes you do just feel like a bit of a geek and like the, the kids are going to look at you like you're crazy but actually um you know there's a whole book here that says that this is valid and that if I care about the maths enough the kids will care with me and we can care about it together and it should make me a better teacher and then better learners of maths and whatever else it is that they want to learn 
that quote got to me as well. I found it really affirming. And actually, I was just reading on the MoMAS website about the um, Mass Communication Prize. And it's really heartbreaking reading what that girl wrote. And she said, I'm tired of being mistaken for a genius when I'm just a plain old nerd. And about how the feelings of a girl going to a mass competition on her own. And as soon as I was reading it, I got really upset because I was there thinking, like, I never want a kid to feel like that. And immediately I thought of your book, Anne. And I was there thinking, like, well, I know the kids think I'm totally mad. I wear mass dresses and I'm a geek and I love my subject. But, you know, like, I can't help it and I'm not ashamed of it. Um, and, you know, I want them to see that enthusiasm. And this I book literally say, gives you permission it made affirming that actually that's all right because it's a positive thing yeah, and, I literally and I just said the same if... thing sorry just about about the kind of that that role model and I think particularly and it might it might almost kind of link to what we were talking about before about culture um mm. that the girls that are in my my I guess top set year 10 at the moment um have historically always been taught by men and I've just taken them over to take them into year 11 and when I first started teaching them, they hated everything. Like they were like, oh, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that. And within a few weeks, I think because I've been there in my stupid mass dress, which they ask for every Friday on a Thursday, they say, Missy, you're gonna wear your mass dress tomorrow. Um, which one is it gonna be? Um, you know, they they have got more confident about the fact that they can say they enjoy maths. It's not just, oh yeah, yeah, I'm really good at maths. It's like, yeah, yeah, I like maths. It's really cool. We did this really cool thing with Miss Darwin and I went to further maths this morning. I'm going to do the further maths GCSE. And they suddenly, they're owning that because I'm owning that. Um, and I think that's quite important for all students to have someone who they see themselves in as well that is, is loving something. So even if, so if that's a, a woman teaching girls that they can love maths or anything else, I think that's really important. Sorry, Rachel, I'll let you get back to your other point. I've forgotten it. <laughs> Can I say something about owning? You talked about owning. And one of the things that I, I didn't pull out, I don't think I pulled it out specifically, but it was in two teachers, used two separate teachers, totally separate environments, used the phrase owning the space. And uh, that that vision of of the the pupil the this is the pupil being able to own the space so the pupil standing up and saying this is what I did this is what I did and that being all right and that being a valid contribution to the lesson and it being listened to not just oh, thank you move on to ask somebody else what they think but it really being listened to and valued and um, and they used the phrase owning, you know, I like my students to feel that they own the space. And I thought that was a really important thing and might sort of get lost in scripted lessons. It depends how you use a scripted lesson, but in, a, in sticking to the script, you might actually lose, um, not, not just lose students being able to say how they understand something but students being able to say it in a way that everybody is listening and that it becomes part of the lesson and I thought that was really nice but I don't think I'd bring that out in the book but it was definitely there in more than one more than one teacher yeah it where you say like the the puzzlement as well and like it's you know one thing you've been a massive change in my 
career. Um, I've learned so much from you and how you do your tasks when you're doing something. I, I'm now thinking like, oh, this is just a really simple problem, but there's so much you can get out of it. And that's been the biggest change to try and bring that aha and that wonder and that puzzlement from a simple little task. Um, I want them to feel it too. Can I come in there? I think um, this, I come at it from a very different angle and I suspect that um, uh, Rachel as well would have come at it from a different angle of the reset learner. Um, and one of the things, Anne, that you say in this particular part talks about communication being the conduit for care and the compulsory nature of maths, which disregards the choice of the student. The reset learner doesn't have the choice, it's mandatory. Um, and we have a real, you know, you can be as enthusiastic as Tigger in that classroom, um, but they've got that kind of Catherine Tate, not bothered Lauren, um, I ain't bothered, you know, they cannot see the rhyme nor reason for having to do that reset. Um, so I, I, I totally hung on to that first line in that first paragraph, when I care, I really hear, see or feel. So it, 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 it kind of... Um, projects itself in so many other ways, doesn't it? It's not just what they say, it's what they, they look like and what they're, what you're seeing in the classroom as well. And, and I, I am having a bit of a conflict. I'd love to do all of these wonderful Tigger lessons where I haven't got uh, to, 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 to go down that pathway and they haven't got to do all of these things because Alison Wolf said that they've got to. Um, and yet, you know, everything you're saying there is absolutely sound. So there is a conflict sometimes, isn't there, with, that, with the nature of our exam system? I just wonder what your comment would be on that. Well, there absolutely is, and particularly the reset idea, which I always felt was completely bonkers. Um, because you take students back to their site of failure. And that's a terrible thing to do to 16-year-olds. Absolutely. Sorry, you're going to have to go through all this again. And, um, and I remember seeing um, videos of... Um, now I'm, I'm at the age now where one begins to forget names. But I think her name was Susan Hall, who worked with Malcolm Swan. Susan Wall. Wall, that's, oh, right. that's it. Yeah. yeah, that's isn't that interesting? So I've got a visual thing of it, but the W has turned into an A. <laughs> um, but but videos of her classroom and her teaching, um, and and the the pedagogy that goes with the standards unit is a pedagogy of care mm. because it's about these people have already been through stuff and they already know stuff and they know a mixture of stuff. And they're 16 year olds, so they want to be grown ups. So they want to be able to contribute their stuff. They don't want me standing there lecturing to them. They want, they want their stuff to be somehow used in the lesson. They want to play a part in the lesson. They want to be a contender, you know, to quote. <laughs> they want to be a contender. And, and that way of teaching, the pedagogy that goes with the standards unit, seems to be a pedagogy of care and of care for the mathematics and of care for the learning of mathematics and of care for their knowledge of mathematics, their existing knowledge of mathematics, and trying to bring that together in a, in a collaborative, collaborative way. But um, one, of the, one of the teachers, I think, in the book was teaching a, a reset group. And I only talk about him a little bit, but um, there was something about his positioning in the classroom that got me. 
that it wasn't him at the front next to the board and the kids, etc. They, uh, I think they were in a school, I can't remember now. Um, he was with them. They were all looking the same way, in a way. He didn't have them working in groups in the bit that I saw, but he did use groups quite a lot. But even when it was more of a kind of everybody face front situation, he was facing front as well. He was one of them and he was among them and he was alongside and this word alongside, which I did bring out, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful word. And I learned it while I was writing the book about being alongside people. I learned that word and the importance of it. And he was alongside them. And, and it was it was this shared puzzlement and this shared working at the mathematics that Ruth Mertens talks about, but she's talking about early years. She's talking about sitting next to an early years child who's puzzling away at something. And, and, and that, um, I don't know what size, your, what size are your classes, Julia? I teach with I teach teachers now, so I'm I'm commonly in lots of different colleges. I mean, I'm just thinking of Lauren Reed, who was that student at City College Plymouth who took nine attempts before she passed her GCSE yes. maths. I mean, that's yes. that's some kind of care there, isn't it, with the team that supported her to do that? And it, it well, yes, well, yes, and what resilience? Well, mm. have to depend on young people's resilience. Mm. Should be if you really want to know what I think. There should be a better and more appropriate curriculum. Mm. Had them and they've gone, and it was a it was a bad political decision. But who can influence what they think and what they legislate? It's it's a mystery to me how you. Do that. But it it does seem to me to be the wrong thing at the wrong age. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. I just say there as well, just that really um, that's resonated with me, the idea of working alongside people, because I'm not sure if I've really realised how much I've done that in the past of, of sitting alongside students and being that student, student in the classroom with them. And, and when I'm at the board as well, just narrating and, um, and any, any deliberate mistakes, but and any misconceptions, but also those misconceptions where, where I haven't meant to do something wrong or uh, maybe I'll share with the students about how I've given you this example but I don't think this is the best example because those sorts of just working alongside each other um, I, I, that's really sort of hit home with me um, but uh, after all have we got any um, as well that uh, people in in the chat or the the Twitter um, handles anyone that's, sort of, that's commented or, or that we want to bring yeah I know we've got loads of them and especially in Periscope we've got uh, thanks everyone for commenting Kems. <laughs> comes in there, Ken, uh, Ken Diddy, uh, Mary Pardo as well. Um, uh, Ken's got a question actually, so we can have a look at it. Uh, should we end the practice of passing or failing our children at the end of Key Stage 4? I guess we've kind of talked about that. It could almost replace Key Stage 4 with any of the Key Stages, couldn't you? Uh, end of discussion, yeah. Key Stage 1, Key Stage 2? Yeah, what Kieran's uh, key stage one and key stage two, and if you have any input. Um, yeah, I suppose I go along with the conversation. I think I, I find them a massive distraction and they get in the way of the actual, you know, the real mathematics and stuff that we're sort of get into the profession for. Um, yeah, so I, I go on, yeah, I, I agree. 
Um, I, I've just been reflecting and, and thinking about that, and especially with um, the comment just now on, we could think of any key stage, which is which is what you just brought into the room, Ella Sinkers. Um, my friend has a master's degree after I think it was eight attempts at her GCSE maths, she decided to stop. But she has a master's degree. I, I, I don't really know what else to say after that, but it, it does mean that, you know, there are some really good questions out there and this is definitely one of them. And I think we know how, how that has landed and how, how deeply that needs to be considered because we were all quiet at that point really reflecting on, on the question that, that Kem has asked here. Um, as you said, Alison, all key stages. Yeah, I, I, I think we may be, you know, inadvertently value failure in some way. Just leave that one out there, be, you know, because of the system. I don't mean personally, but we tend to go along with it, don't we? Um, because we think we have to. And, and my reflection on that was that I think there is a need for a, a sort of certain script so that we have um, some sort of measure of, of success and, and how uh, and that achievement and, and how um, people progress. But um, something that's sort of been said already um, from Anna earlier that just for me links to that is the idea of not losing the care when you're using the script. And, and that feels like it's the same with an assessment that I do believe that there is, is value and need for some sort of assessive process, but, um, but not losing the care through that script and, and however that process may look. Um, that's something which has made me reflect on. Is it the difference between assessment and accountability? Yeah, I, I think so. So it doesn't have to be necessarily an assessment. So yeah, accountability is a better word for that. I think you're absolutely right. It's um, it's that process of the accountability and then not losing the care. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an assessment. It could be something different, but it's it just really made me think about whatever that script is. Don't lose the care when you're when you're going through whatever the script is that we as a, as a nation or as a, as a mathematical body or whoever decide to use. Well, I think that was an incredibly good question, Atul. Would you like to should we bring some more? Oh, John, you've unmuted. Well, I've just been wondering, do you think it would be possible or even desirable to have to replace an, the assessment system with a situation in which individuals could ask to check whether or not their version of understanding accords with the teacher's view of their understanding. So, and some people might choose never to do this. And I mean, following Anne's book, I mean, it seems to me that's, that's, their, that's their choice um, and, and so be it. But they would see other people around them making the choice to check whether or not their, their grasp was um, adequate or appropriate or consistent with what the teacher thought? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I, I worry about things that involve student choice, as I make clear in the excerpt that you've chosen, that when you make things um, dependent on student choice, 
you're, you've got a whole bunch of stuff going on in the background. You've got parental aspirations and expectations. You've got community aspirations and expectations that are all going to influence that student's choice. And they may not have had a, an authentic experience on which they can base their choices. And the question, the, the original question that sparked all this was about assessment at key stage four. And I think we're possibly the only developed country that has that kind of key stage four level of assessment. Um, and that um, makes that um, a hurdle, a gatekeeping device for everything that happens next. Hence the reset and reset and reset and reset and reset. I think there is something wrong with our assessment system, but I wouldn't want to therefore throw all assessments out because as teachers, teachers are responsible for educating fairly all students is a social justice issue. You're accountable to social justice. I would like to think you're accountable to social justice. And even now, that doesn't seem to be working. It's still the case that achievement is to some extent related to ethnicity, gender, first language at home, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, unless you're telling me that people's brains are different, which I would strongly argue against. Um, and, and yet something is happening that stratifies people as they go through school. And it's not the fact that they're assessed that is stratifying them. It might be the way that they are, they are assessed. It might be um, the education system's response to those assessments that is contributing to the stratification. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going along with this get rid of everything thing, because I think that you have to be answerable to social justice. Not every student in every school has same equity or parity of experience with, with the person that they have in front of them. I am a very different teacher now than what I was 15 years ago. It doesn't mean that I wasn't trying really hard, but I can, I can just see more. I've got greater capacity to deal with more in a classroom and be able to think about the mathematics at the same time. And it, it, is, it is, a, is a difficult balance on that one as well. And I also know um, colleagues who've been to schools where their, their diet in maths is, they're watching a video of an expert showing the lesson because the teacher has said that the expert is, is better than them. And, and that is their experience through primary. Because they are, they are watching uh, a, a series of videos as, as their lessons. And it's just, it's a, it's a much wider conversation than that as well, isn't it? And then we've got, we've got other people in the room who are much earlier on in their careers than I am as well. Sorry, Dave, I'm wittering. I'll bring you
Thank you, Rita. Um, I was um, I just, I mean, all of that is um, it's really got me reflecting. I think it's great. And I'm, I'm now looking just at a slightly different angle and, and just looking at the care and in the extract about caring for ideas. And it's just something which, um, just looking at time as well, I wanted to ask a little bit more about that. And and again, it brings me back to the, the Peter Matter book club session that we looked at with manipulatives, um, for example, and I was just sort of wanting to, to maybe talk a little bit more about some of the specific ideas that others have tried in a classroom or, you know, things that would just um, just help me to, to get to that sort of pinpoint and little things that I could really take away and go, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to try that and try and really care for that student because they need to understand that. I mean, Charlotte, I know that you've had um, experiences in using manipulatives and things like that and, and listening to you talk was just incredible in, in that book club about some of the, the ideas and thoughts around that I don't know if you or anyone else has had any thoughts around um you know the, the care in terms of what we do with, with manipulatives um I think I think we have to be very careful um they can be used badly and it is I think I talked about it in my last talk that just because we see correct mathematics and we we take a deeper understanding from what we see in manipulatives doesn't mean that that's what the learners see and I think that links a little bit to their care as well because if I'm just going to say oh here's these manipulatives this is what you need to do with them this is the idea that I want you to get from them then we're not caring about what they see and what what they know about it and then how they can bring about better understanding through through listening to them and caring about what what they see in it first and I think that's taken a while but I do do that now more more than I ever did it's not you can do that in the early stages where you can think right I've been on this CPD I've learned this thing I need to do this and this and this with it and then go into the classroom and and they're not getting it and you think oh well it's actually me or the myth or, or whatever but actually are we are we listening to what they understand by and it's the same with anything it doesn't have to be manipulative at all um it's it's anything at all are we listening to what they're understanding from from that. Yeah, I, I think that's really coming through for me as well, because um, my experience of, of using those manipulatives is very much of the thinking um, and that misguided thinking that I was caring for my students now, so I was going to use this extra technique that was going to help them all. So we're all going to use this now. And I still wasn't actually really properly listening then to the students. And, and maybe that was sort of my learning process of, of using them as well. But it's um, it really is about sort of actively um, understanding the, the individuals um, behind um, the, the learning and, and yes it's really starting to to sort of properly probably seek in for me and I just really appreciate um, all these comments thank you so much everyone can I just ask Kieran just because I know he's in a very different position to like most of us what what do you see as like care in a in a primary classroom and, and I guess how can we learn from that <laughs> so I find it really interesting particularly reading the sort of abstract that we're focusing on because my interpretation of care is having the same high expectations of all the pupils that we teach as I would have of my own kids and, and the sort of background that my kids are from compared with those kids that I, I sort of teach and when I was reading I was like you know like you say you're talking about finding sort of the permission and I was like yeah that, that, you know I'm very much I will expect, you know, high academic standards from no matter who you are. And I think that's the best thing we can do for all of our children, because then we show them that uh, 
that kind of mathematical rigor is for them, um, but B, that they, that they can attain, you know, the, the high standards they set for themselves, you know, and just show them that those standards are possible. Um, because I think it's very easy, because they're young children, cure to be absorbed by the fact that we sort of nourish them as human beings, you know, from when they're, you know, three sometimes when they come into school. But actually, I think there's there's definitely a, a balance that might not always be visible. Um, and it's, you know, what expectations do we have for people's regardless of, of where they're from or who they, they might be? No, I really, I really like that. It's, it's a different lean on the idea of care, isn't it? I'm thinking of sometimes I've heard a school say, yeah, but we're a caring school. But that doesn't mean you can't have incredibly high expectations and aspirations of your students and help to do the best by them. And so there are lots of different ways to care for our students. And it's, it's as, you, as, as you said right at the beginning, I think it was Catherine, this has given us the permission to go, actually, there's a, there's a lot of research behind the care that we're doing here. It is, it is rigorous, it is academic, it is, it is having high aspirations and expectation. It is fantastic teaching and, and enthusing our students and making them love and enjoy mathematics because of the cultural capital that gives them as well. And it's just, it's so complex. And I think, as, as it's already been said this evening, it, uh, Alison, you said about how incredible this book was and that it's a game changer. And for me, I think I'm going to need to keep going back and rereading it. I think every single time I read it, I will get another layer, a layer that I didn't get first time round. And every time I'm picking up something really incredible, not realising as well, it's, it's like past the parcel, isn't it? In a sense that I'm going to keep unwrapping a layer and finding another treat every time rather than right at the very end. So um, incredible yeah. conversations here. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I will have to take hand to task on that because every time I start to read it, I, I, I'm then totally absorbed with it. So, you know, it's, you know, make, you know, give yourself time. But, um, but I think it is, I think it's because what we've been saying earlier, it does resonate. And I think it just, for me also, it reminds me of the things that I thought I cared about that maybe I've temporarily forgotten that I cared about. I think that's the other thing as well. Um, but I kind of just wanted to come in on the, the, the conversation, particularly that Kieran was having as well, because I, I guess one of the things I didn't say at the beginning is that really kind of, you know, I predominantly work in early years and primary. And I guess I didn't say that at the beginning, because for me, I don't really age or phase or, or stage myself. Um, but for me, this book is applicable to any age, you know, preschool, post-school, you know, all, all learners. So, you know, I think it goes back to if you care about the mathematics and if you care about your students, and, and I'm using Anne's phrases, by the way, these are not mine, I'm plagiarising. Uh, but, but then if you, if you care for, you know, how you're, that learning of that mathematics, it doesn't matter what the age is. And it makes me wonder, and, and I'm just going to throw this out there, this isn't necessarily kind of, I haven't formed this thought very well, but I, but I wonder if in primary particularly, we feel that we do have to uh, show our students a little bit more, you know, because we think, well, they haven't had experiences of, so I, I do perhaps need to do a little bit more show and tell. And actually, I, I totally disagree with that. But, it, you know, but that's hard, isn't it? When you think, well, they, they don't know how to do this. So maybe I need to step in and help. And I think, you know, there's a time and a place and et cetera. But, but I think that 
if you go back to those principles that Anne's talking about, that if you really care about the mathematics in the way that Anne's describing, it does just make you stop and think and, and, and notice, you know, and, and listen to your students and just hear them, listen to them. And, and I love what, what Dave was saying earlier about working alongside. How often, you know, do we just sit down and work alongside and have that, that equity in our classrooms? So yeah, it, it, it's still a game changer, by the way. <laughs> Can I give a little illustration of, of something that I learned when, uh, when I was a, a teacher in a secondary school and I was forced to go on a, an outdoor pursuit weekend because my whole tutor group was going up to come and where we went to, oh, going to South Wales to some outdoor thing and I had to go with them and I'm not that kind of a person. I don't do walking on ropes among treetops and that sort of thing. But watching the, um, the outdoor pursuit expert teachers work with children of different levels of fear, different physical capabilities, different, um, different everythings, really, watching them get the kids to walk on a rope, holding a rope across a, a, a raging torrent of river that was like a little trickle of water you know and watching that happen and it was really interesting because it wasn't oh some of them can swing across there with no problem at all others are going to have to put their wellies on and wade across because they can't do it it wasn't that at all it was how do we get everybody to do this and some people needed more support than others in terms of extra ropes. Some needed to be listened to. The teacher took their fear seriously. Um, didn't say, oh, come on, don't be silly, off you go, etc., etc." Or, you know, if you can't do it, then you won't be able to have, you won't come to the campfire tonight if you don't, you know, there was none of that at all. It was, it was, it was what does it take for this child to get across on the rope, to feel that they have achieved that and they have done that themselves, but with collaboration. And the, the group was cheering people on. It was just amazing, really amazing. I've never forgotten that. And, and that would be a question that is worth asking, is what does it, what does it take for a child to have that same kind of I can't do it, I'm frightened of it, I can't see how to do it, I need to work with my friends, you know, those sorts of things. What does it take for a child to understand a mathematical idea? I love that. As an ex-girl guider, um, taking, taking groups on camps and doing that, it was always a team. You contribute, whether one managed it, we all contributed to do something and I mean, I haven't always been a teacher, but it was my work in guiding that made me then go into the classroom because it is that. And like we, we've all gonna, we're all going to have the same journey. We're all going to be on it together. I love that analogy. That's absolutely wonderful. Um, and there's a question on Twitter as well, and it's gone through from Sarah Richards. Um, thank you, Asshole, for sharing this as well. Uh, and please, could you say something about Malcolm Swan's work and why it embodied caring? if you'd like to comment on that. 
Well, it was um, completely authentic mathematics. That particular project, that particular project was, was age appropriate. It was content appropriate. It recognized what the individual children had things to bring and it created a structure within which not only could they bring their knowledge to bear, but you couldn't actually do much unless people brought their knowledge to bear on it. So it was um, it was about teenagers as people rather than teenagers as um, sort of fodder for the next turn of the exam wheel. <laughs> it was teenagers as people. And uh, well, not only that, but look, you know, he would have said that it wasn't actually his work um, in that sense. It was teamwork that produced it. And it was particularly the experiences of, of watching Susan Wall at work and how she organized things and why she organized things in those ways. So, so those are the sorts of things that he would say that I think are kind of wrapped up in, in care. Care for the, yeah, care for the sort of people who end up having to take resets over and over again and thinking about them and what they can bring to it. And the achievement of, as Rachel was saying, of collaborative problem solving is immense. That's absolutely wonderful. Um, they're, they're flying in now with the questions from Periscope. I think I might have said Twitter or Periscope, um, but they're, they're flying in now. Thanks, Atul, for, for sharing them as well. But um, a question from Mary Pardo. Where does fear come from? Uh, what do students, uh, say key stage four students, fear? Um, what do students, what was the... What, what do they fear? What are they fearful of? I, I don't... I mean, there's a lot of work going on about um, maths fear and maths anxiety, and it is a real thing. I mean, people's heart rates do rise and their palms do sweat, and um, it is a real thing. It's not an invention. And, um, and, and I think that... Uh, uh, I've forgotten what the first part of the question was because I had an answer to that, and I don't have an answer to the second part. What was the first part again? So it was, um, where does fear come from? Yes. Oh, fear comes from. Um, where does fear come from? Where does my fear come from? I, I have a fear of walking across footbridges over fast-flowing rivers, for instance. Where does that come from? Um, it comes from an insecurity. It comes from a sense of danger. It comes from a sense that something awful will happen if I get something wrong. Um, it's a sense of foreboding. It's a, it's a sense of a repeated situation in which, um, you know, nothing awful might have happened to you, but something might happen to you. And that's a repeated situation in which gradually that fear builds up until it becomes part and parcel of seeing a fraction in a calculation. I mean, that's a, for some people, that's not an exaggeration. It might be an exaggeration for any of you, but it's that, um, it, it's much more than that, uh-oh kind of feeling. It's, uh, I can't cope with this and I'm going to have to do it and something awful will happen if I, if I don't. Um, and it blocks 
um, the mind from working. Um, chemically, it blocks the mind from working. We, we know, we, we, the research world knows that this is a real mathematics. Where does it come from? Well, I wouldn't like to say, but I would imagine that um, care is an important part of trying to avoid it happening. I, I think that, um, and this is totally a guess, I have no backing for this whatsoever. I think it might arise because it's so likely in maths lessons that you can get things wrong. It's probably the subject in school where there are far more opportunities to get things wrong than there are in any other subject. And that getting things wrong might be as a result of you thinking very hard about something or doing what you thought was the right thing. Most, most of the things that are called misconceptions are the product of thinking that in another situation might be perfectly okay. Overgeneralization or assuming that something that works in one context would work in another context that looks vaguely like it, those sorts of things. And if you keep, do, if you keep doing that, and if the response that you get is not helpful for your own thinking, then you're likely to get anxious about doing it, aren't you? So, was that Mary Pardo? She probably knows more about this than I do. <laughs> it was, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and it's, yes, yeah, I think um, there's some, I mean, they're flying through these questions. It's going to turn into a bit of a question and answer, so I will just part there just for a second now and see if anyone else wanted to join in also, but I said, yeah, wonderful answer again, and it's, yeah, really got me thinking once more. Yes, yes. It's a really tricky, tricky one because we don't know mm. through the curriculum and marking things wrong without there being a conversation about the thinking that went on behind it. Absolutely. Oh, is there another one, Dave? I'm loving these. Uh, there are loads. I'll try, I'm not going to get through everyone, so sorry. Um, uh, there's one from lines right here. Um, Even if we manage to succeed with care in mass education, would the education system allow all students to succeed, i.e. pass? Mm. Very interesting question. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I kept as quiet as I could during the bit about assessment because, uh, I mean, in a way, I like John's idea of sort of just in time presenting your knowledge, um, you know, being able to do that and say, look, I now understand so and so. And that becoming a habit in the classroom, I do quite, quite like that idea. But um, an education system, that's a different kettle of fish. I don't know if any of you heard the um, uh, very, very long podcast that I did with Chris Bolton on uh, Craig Barton's site, but it was three and a half hours. But you know, Chris, Chris Bolton is very committed to the idea of there being a system because the thing, the education system is too big and too unwieldy 
for there not to be systems thinking about it, top down like that. I'm afraid I think completely the opposite way. I think of the learner in the classroom, and what that what learners' needs are. I know when I think about one learner's needs that I'm thinking about thousands. I know that. Um, so, so, uh, uh, but an education system can never function in a way that um, does absolutely the right thing for every individual. And I do think that there's got to be some kind of reward, some kind of way of marking, of, of registering that somebody has learned some mathematics. Um, and, and it's, but it's, it's getting it right. And I think where, where the bottom up and the top down, the reason why they're not meeting at the moment is the nature of the curriculum and the implications for learning of the current curriculum that we have and the implications for learning that we have in our current testing at key stage two and so on. So that, so that just at the age when, when children are beginning to perhaps enjoy being able to think things through for themselves and have their ideas, complex ideas, um, building on their basic numerical understanding or their basic spatial understanding, building on those just at the point at which you want that to be happening, they're having to be tested in doing column arithmetic. And, and that's where I think things, there's a, there's a kind of a, a tectonic plate start going in opposite directions. But that's not in the book. You know, I'm supposed to be talking about the book and that's not in the book. I haven't gone down there in the book. As we said at the beginning, the conversation just goes, um, it goes, doesn't it? And it's been such a rich conversation this evening. I'm so enjoying this. Um, Ken made uh, another comment on uh, Periscope as well about um, the compatibility of care um, in that uh, market of education where schools are incentivized to exclude low attainment potentially. And, and that just sort of resonated with some of the comments you're making there that those concerns um, exist. But Ken um, asked a question as well about um, the, the gender divide in terms of um, the want to, to study maths and whether, whether that's cultural or pedagogical um, and, and trying to distinguish between the difference of those two. And yeah, I wouldn't want to try and answer that question on my own. That's a, that's a tough and good question. <laughs> I, I think it's probably both. I, I want to get back to the individual teacher in their own classroom and their caring environment in their own classroom. Because whether you have a door to your classroom that shuts or not, when you're in your classroom, I actually think this is completely possible, that there are places in your own classroom where you can exercise the freedom to be this, this caring, this, this, this alongside um, teacher who, whatever it is, whatever the system is that you're working in, that, that the care for the person and the care for the maths and the care for the learning of maths is possible in some way in your classroom, whatever else is going on. Absolutely. And that if you, um, 
you know, if you're working in a very, very structured environment and you have to do lessons in this way and you have to look as if you're teaching in that way and you have testing at the end of every week or whatever it is, I still think it's possible to do that in a way that shares your care for mathematics, your care for the students and the care for the learning of mathematics. It might not be what you want in, the, in your ideal situation, but it's possible to do that. And I suspect that if that's how you can act and if that's how you do act, and if you make that a priority, that on Friday you'll feel a lot better than you do if you've been thinking all week, I've got to drill, drill through all these systems requirements if, if you go to work thinking i've got to drill for all these systems requirements it's going to be harder there was one one thing that i think is possible in every school every school that isn't done in every school and it was in the um independent therapeutic school where the teacher said it's all right to say you feel really rubbish it's all right among your colleagues to say I'm feeling really rubbish. It's all right if you go to work and somebody says, how are you? And you're feeling rubbish. It's okay to say that in this school. Now, that would be wonderful if that could happen in every school. That, the, that, that how the teachers feel is open and is open for discussion, is open for understanding. And I think that would make a huge difference because then you could carry that sense of that sense of being OK and being a being a valued person in the school. You could carry that into the classroom with you and, and, and spread that being a valued person thing among your 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 students. It's very, very hard for teachers to pass on care to students if they're not cared for themselves. And that's something that I know is missing from some, some schools. And um, but yet it could happen in every school. And if it can't happen in your school, then it, maybe it can happen in your department. Maybe it can happen in your little particular coffee level or whatever it is, round your little stock cupboards, <laughs> whatever. I'm really glad you said that. Um, like when one of the things I, I wrote down was um, on that first page of this section, it, you talked about the layers and the model of care and the top one said caring for self. And I wrote, teachers don't do this. <laughs> like I think we're in such a system that doesn't allow us to do that. I'm really glad that you've made that point at the end that it's not just about us caring for the kids. It's about us caring for each other as professionals and for ourselves too. I think, um, gosh, this has just made me think a lot in, especially at the end of the day. Um, so I love teaching maths, it's what I do. Um, sitting down with students, sitting alongside them and doing maths. I would usually only really do that with my year 13 for the math students in the end because of the, the nature of the math that we would do. And what I would often find I do on a Friday was I go to choir. And in choir, it's where I would sing with the students and we'd learn a song together and we'd learn alongside one another. 
and we'd get to know each other in a different way. And what I'm thinking about with all of this is the nature of those relationships I'm able to build. And as I reflect back now, how that I was able to use that to top up my own energy levels, as well as the positivity in the room and working together and collaboratively on something. And how I was caring for myself in that at the same time. And if you can get all that from being in choir, I have to be able to harness something in there that I can also take into my mathematics classroom. But not just my mathematics classroom when I'm working with students, a mathematics classroom when I'm working with teachers and colleagues and, and everything else as well. That, that care in mathematics really does permeate and resonate far beyond anything that I originally thought that it might do. So um, that is that is my very poor attempt at articulating at the moment. The, the way I'm working through tonight, my takeaway for the session, and I, I didn't know if anybody else around the room as well, just wanted to, to share something to start sort of round off and, and think about our ideas and try and bring it together, because I get a feeling we could talk about this for hours because it is incredibly fascinating. Um, any volunteers, really? I do think it was really important when um, we brought it back away from the systems to what the book, what I really got from the book, which was it was speaking to me. And I think if anyone is listening, it, it is a it is to teachers. It really is. And I know that's what you're you were aiming for. And it really is speaking to teach. I felt like it was speaking to me. I can make a change. I can just reminding me to care. And that sounds awful, doesn't it? That maybe I'd forgotten to to care about everything. Um, because there's so many things. Oh, teach things this way, teach things that way. And um, and yeah, it was like you say, permission and and, a, and also a reminder about everything. And it it really is powerful and it's written to the teacher. So regardless of the system, regardless of what you're being asked to do, you can still do these things. You can still um, bring bring care into your classroom. Um, it was it was remarkable just reading about the the other spaces as well. Um, just really really well written. Um, so please yeah please read it if you can. Thank you, Charlotte. Anybody else? Julia. Yeah, I'll go. Um, I think that, that there was some key phrases in, in the passage which really resonated with me, uh, that, that communication is a conduit for care. And, and particularly with um, research students and, and students that find maths really difficult and they've come out of the system and there they are, they're still having to do it or it's a, it's a barrier. Uh, to, to going on to do something else. One of the things that Mars Maths does is she asks students to write a letter to maths and she gives them a wonderful example and it's just brilliant. And it, it really, you know, ties in perfectly with what's going on here. Um, and it, it, in that letter, she gives them an example. So, dear maths, I really hated you at school. We never got on. You were always really horrible to me. Um, I didn't understand you. And it goes on in that vein. And she's got some wonderful things on her blog. And she encourages all of her students to articulate how they feel, how they felt about maths, um, you know, and just get it all out. And then they can they can talk about it. And it really is that that start maybe of that, the, the conduit for care in, in those classrooms with those research learners. It's a brilliant exercise. Um, so that's on Mars Maths on her blog. It's wonderful. So it really does tie in very neatly here, I think. Thank you, Julia. Would anybody else like to? 
I could say loads and I, I promise I won't. Um, I, I love the phrase. I love kind of what you were talking about, Anne, that, you know, we need hearts, we need heart, hands and we need minds. And I just think that's a lovely summary of, of kind of, I can't bottle it up and, and kind of, you know, say that's the care that you've been talking about because that does not do, a, you know, um, a good service. But hearts, hands and minds, I thought that was lovely. Just reminding us of all of those different elements. Thank you. I mean, um, for me, what that book's done, Anne, and what you've done um, by writing about, because you constantly say, what is this an alternative to? And every time you said that, it felt it gave me a voice, because I'm, I'm not a mainstream teacher. I've felt imposter syndrome on Mass Chat Live on every single episode. Um, and because I work in this kind of unique online space with someone, and by covering all those various case studies, uh, you bring it to the fact that how people put their culture, uh, and it's all contextual, everything's conditional, right? We try and think, oh, my student can do this and this and this, X and Y and this other school or in this other country can do that, but actually it's all contextual, it's all cultural, and it's all uh, the, the, the teacher facing the classroom, the tutor facing the tutee knows those kind of local conditions best uh, they know they're, they're who's in front of them so for me you've kind of given me that voice and that sort of permission that being in this alternatives place is is actually is okay it's quite quite normal there's a lot of people doing various alternative things and this crazy online tutoring thing that you do at all is is part of that wider sphere of uh, mathematics education and my you know my duties um I'm about to start off with a, a 78 year old lady who's the grandmother of one of my current duties uh, and uh, you know I always echo Mark McCourt's I can't believe we haven't mentioned him yet but I always echo his sentiment that if you really believe everyone can learn maths and if you really really truly believe it uh, that's probably the most important thing uh, and that's that's sort of that resonates with me and I constantly believe in that and if um, whoever comes to me, I have this thing that you will learn maths provided you put the, put the effort in here. Thank you, Etel. Absolutely right to bring Mark into it as well. Charlotte, would you like to share? You're unmuted. Oh, no, sorry, just... Oh, that's okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's absolutely, yeah. Um, Catherine? Um, I think... For me, um, a little bit like what Charlotte said, it's a reminder about lots of the reasons that a lot of us probably decided to be teachers. This kind of like this care thing is what you you write in your teacher training application. It's what you look for when you're looking for a, a trainee teacher. And, you, and I mean, Julie is like probably in the best place to, to talk about this. But that's the thing that that got us into what we were what what we're doing now it, you know the love of the maths the love of wanting to share that um and that that real care about both of those things in tandem and it is easy to forget with school systems and everything else that's going on in the world at any given time but it's important that we still do that because if we can do that then the kids can do that too Thank you, Catherine. Dave, would you like to come in now? I think we'll uh, start rounding it off now. 
Thanks. So if, if that looks like most of the takeaways, then just um, a few little takeaways for me where I've just just bullet pointed ideas. And the first one just says listening in my notes and then learn your students. It is academically valid to care and love your subject. Don't lose the care when using a script, work alongside people. Um, and, and there was just, the, there's a few more just little statements like that that I'm just going to take away and, and bring into my everyday. And I just thought that I just like how concise everything is, how you can just write it in, in just a few words and really understand the message behind what's going on there. And that's what I really liked about the book as well, is how concise and rigorous, yet rigorous, the, the, the book is. And um, But there is one final question that I've been asked to um, to ask. So um, this question comes from a, um, a John Mason, um, who, who has asked. Um, no, um, so so John, John suggested we should ask Anne um, how you located the various practitioners in your case studies. Um, and, and I thought that might be a really nice way just to finish off today, if you could share that as we as we round this up. Australia, Anne. What was the question? Oh my goodness, he wants me to tell you a particular story. <laughs> oh, well, let's be this, a crap. This away really away. will round things off one <laughs> way or another. Yeah, you might go away thinking I'm completely batty. I I've had a I'd had a very interesting time learning about teaching maths in these indigenous communities. And I was thinking. How do I get from indigenous communities to schools? How do I get to, to sort of mainstream schools? How do I do that? Um, I didn't want to lose some of the things that were in the indigenous community chapter because they seemed to get at something fundamental about what it means to educate children within a culture. Um, but I needed a bridge and I, and I didn't know what, how to do this at all and one night I had a dream and a name came into my mind in the dream and it when I when I woke up um that name stuck with me and it didn't mean anything to me at all and I looked through emails and I couldn't find this name and I um, asked various groups of people that I work with on various things and it wasn't the name wasn't there and but but um, instead of just thinking this is a dream this name kept coming back to me now I had been writing about indigenous people where one of the forms of knowledge is beyond our consciousness so I decided that I would take this seriously. And I would say this name, this name came to me in a dream. I'd been writing about Aborigine uh, culture where things do come to you in a dream. Maybe it's worth pursuing this name. So I Googled, I couldn't find anybody who had this name. And then I Googled the name and the word mathematics. And I found that way the school that I've used at the end of the indigenous chapter, which is the school, which is a mainstream school in, 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 a, in an Australian city, um, but has a high proportion of Aboriginal children. It has an Aboriginal education program. It has an Aboriginal head teacher, but working in an urban context. And, uh, and I found this school. By, by this name, 
it was extraordinary. Had a wonderful time with them. I mean, you can read in the book. There was some really interesting stuff because you do see there the bridge between the working, the, the issues about working with people from an alienated culture. And we all have those people in our schools. They may not be Aboriginal, but we have people who are from alienated cultures in, in our schools. So working with those people in a way that honoured the predominant culture within which they lived, that honoured that and that valued that. And, um, and I write about it in the book. And when I talked to them, um, they kept saying to me, oh, you've probably heard, this is my Australian accent, oh, you've probably heard us because we're involved in such and such a project. Or, oh, did so-and-so tell you about us because we're involved in some project? Or, um, oh, you probably saw a head teacher talking at a conference about something, an online conference about something. I kept saying, no, that's not how I found you. And in the end, I had to say, look, actually, I found you because I dreamt this particular name in a dream. And they all laughed like anything and said, that's how it is. And that's how it is. <laughs> But, so you can now think that I'm completely nutty, but it's a, uh, it, it does, it does, it did bring home to me that there are ways of knowing, there are ways of knowing that are beyond our rational European heritage ways of knowing. I, I wish I hadn't invited you to gate crash this event, John, because I wasn't going to tell them that. Oh, I'm very happy you did, John. Very happy you did. <laughs> That's all. I'm going to hand over to you now because I think we are just wrapping up and coming to the end. And I just want to say thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. It's been such a wonderful experience chatting to you. And I think that could have gone on for hours more. So just a, a massive thank you for all of us. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Brilliant. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, wrap it up there, and I'm gonna hit the stop streaming button, and then uh, we'll just have a quick uh, five minutes in the the green room again. And uh, thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, this recording will stay there. So whatever afterthoughts you have, it's there. Do keep commenting and keep the conversation going. And all of this uh, sometimes says sort of the beginning of a conversation. So um, it's uh, it's out there. So thank you everyone for your time and for tuning in uh, and on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you.